Chapter 28. This starts off with a woe, and so does chapter 29, and chapter 30, and 31. And they all belong to one part of the seven-part structure of the book of Isaiah. The woe is a pronunciation of a covenant curse. That's not a very friendly beginning. And the content of these chapters is kind of didactic. It's a genre that exhorts people, or the Lord's people, to repent and to come and to rise to a higher level than they are. The theme of these chapters is a covenant with death that appears here in chapter 28. And it's juxtaposed or parallel with another set of chapters later on in the book of Isaiah that talk about a covenant of life. And so there's kind of two ways you can go, a covenant with death or a covenant of life. The covenant with death turns out to be relying upon human counsel or schemes. You know, your committees, I guess, consensus rather than divine revelation. It's a contest between divine revelation or inspiration from God and human ideas, imaginations of the heart, human schemes, contingency plans, the arm of flesh, things like that. Anything that takes you away from reliance upon God that you would have in the covenant of life. The covenant of life with the Lord later on, as we'll see, gets you firmly into the Lord's way of doing things with the attendant blessings of prosperity and protection. And here the opposite happens. You lose everything. In fact, you go to death in the day of judgment, whereas those who rely upon the Lord and covenant with Him live through the time of judgment. The covenant of life preserves them, and they live on into the millennium. That's the old theme of destruction of the wicked or judgment upon the wicked and deliverance of the righteous or salvation for the righteous. So this is more the negative aspect that we're looking at. We must keep in mind that there is a positive side of the thing, which we'll read later on. Woe to the garlands of glory, verse 1, of the drunkards of Ephraim. Their crowning splendor has become as fading reeds on the heads of the opulent overcome with wine. Ephraim traditionally was noted for pride. That's what we see here. I don't know why Ephraim is associated with pride, really. Uh, Maybe because of the birthright blessing of Ephraim that came down through Joseph, who blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, laid his right hand upon Ephraim's head. Joseph receiving the birthright from Jacob, and Jacob from Isaac, and Isaac from Abraham. It may have been that, or just a disposition, or they were partly Egyptian. There's lots of um, ties here to Egyptians, or to the Egyptian nation in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 19, we see the idea of drunkenness there too, as we see in this chapter. That's a linking motif, linking the two. Of course, Ephraim was born of an Egyptian mother, a Seneth, and a Hebrew father. The King James version of this verse has the heads of the fat valleys. The Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah helps out in this respect and shows that a yod, a little tiny letter, looks like a comma, is displaced. It appears displaced and helps to make sense of the Masoretic text. The Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah dates to a manuscript from 200 AD, approximately, and scholars say that it goes back to a manuscript of about 200 B.C. At any rate, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah is generally more corrupt than the Masoretic text, but in this case, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah helps out. 
It doesn't make sense at all to say the heads of the fat valleys because, first of all, the word is not even valley. It is gully. On the heads of the fat gullies, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the parallelism, which is often a clue as to what the meaning of the verse is. It literally means on the heads of the fat, proud ones. And you don't say that when you translate in English. You say the opulent, which means both rich or fat and proud at the same time. Woe to the garlands of glory then of the drunkards of Ephraim. Their crowning splendor has become as fading reeds on the heads of the opulent overcome with wine. The fading reeds on their heads implies that they're looking back to past glories, believing that those past glories, which happened in a better day, because of true righteousness and true valor and true prosperity with which the Lord blessed them, that now that the people have turned to iniquity and become more wicked than they were before, they think that those blessings of the past will continue to go on, that the Lord's blessings would just continue regardless of what we do in the present. Whereas actually they're overcome with wine. Being overcome with wine all through the Hebrew prophets, including in the book of Revelation, where John the Revelator talks about the harlot Babylon and her wine, can be literal wine and could allude to alcoholism, a problem with alcoholism, but also generally it is just being in a state of delusion or self-deception, living in unreality. The reality of today is not the same as the reality of yesterday, and we can't rely upon yesterday and what happened then. We have to deal with present realities, and that has to do with repentance of present sins. Now, there were deeds of splendor, crowning splendor, acts of valor of Ephraim. Anciently, as a nation, the people of Ephraim were very valiant in war. And in other respects, they were a civilized people, and they had much to be proud about in a positive sense. There was grounds for being satisfied with achievements and so forth. But it has its downside as well, as we well know, the cycle of prosperity through pride and through wickedness happens over and over throughout history. So what's the result? Verse 2, my Lord has in store, one mighty and strong. And that word, in store, or that expression, in store, we've seen it a number of times in connection with the Lord's day of judgment. The Lord has a day in store in chapter 2 a day of judgment, a day of destruction and calamity. So whenever we see that expression, we know that it's alluding to something ominous. My Lord has in store one mighty and strong. In the book of Isaiah, there are two mighty and strong. The king of Assyria, in this case, or the king of Babylon, is one mighty and strong. And he's the one that's talked about here. The other one mighty and strong is the Lord's servant. And he's the one through whom the Lord deals with the king of Assyria, like David and Goliath. David puts down Goliath, and then Israel's army is able to win the war. And so it is in this case. But in the meantime, this one mighty and strong, the king of Assyria, has his day, the great day of his power. And this is what's discussed here. As a ravaging hailstorm sweeping down, or like an inundating deluge of mighty waters, he will hurl them to the ground by his hand. He will hurl the fading reeds on the heads of the opulent down to the ground by his hand. The hand is the left hand of the Lord in this case, which designates the king of Assyria and his power, the hand of punishment with which the Lord smites his people. And the king of Assyria, all the way through the book of Isaiah, as you become aware, is identified with floodwaters, 
with a new flood. In chapter 7 and 8, he's like the new flood that comes up and sweeps over all the earth, right up to the neck, leaving the head of the city Zion or Jerusalem untouched. He's not able to touch the righteous people of the Lord. Also the storm imagery, as the ravaging hailstorm, that storm imagery is associated with the Day of Judgment. The king of Assyria is the new flood. He kicks up a storm against the Lord's people and comes against the wicked of the Lord's people. He's the Lord's instrument of punishment in dealing with them. Also, for the righteous, there is protection from the hailstorm and from the downpour and from rain, as we saw in chapter 4, under the protection of the cloud of glory with which the Lord covers his people. So all of this is only happening to the wicked, in other words. It doesn't have power over the righteous. Verse 3, the proud garlands of the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden underfoot. And that's another link to the king of Assyria. He's the one who treads the people underfoot in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, when the Lord commissions him against his wicked people to tread them underfoot. And this imagery of hurling to the ground and being trodden underfoot is chaos imagery. He reduces the Lord's people, the wicked of the Lord's people, to chaos. He has all power over them that time. As a man would have power over a drunkard, he's no match for somebody who's sober. (laughs) And the fading reeds, the crowns of glory on the heads of the opulent, shall be like the first ripe fruit before summer harvest. He who sees it devours it the moment he has hold of it. Again, the crowns of glory, which were well earned in the past or in past generations. For example, take the United States of America. They won the First World War and they won the Second World War for the world. That doesn't mean to say that in another world war, they'll win again. Just because they won the first two doesn't mean they'll win again. The first ripe fruit before summer harvest, harvest is again day of judgment imagery and alludes to the destruction of the harvest of the wicked that we saw there in chapter 27, verse 12. It also indicates a time frame. And we've seen this time frame several times already. We've seen the time of feasting, an earlier chapter, and we've seen the time of the grain harvest, but before the fruit harvest, seems like, somewhere in between there, in the middle of summer. Also the word devour, he who devours it, that again alludes to the Assyrian army. They devour Israel with open mouth, is an expression used of them. They devour the wicked of Israel. So there's lots of rhetorical or word links to the Assyrian destruction here upon the wicked. In that day, that is the day of judgment, verse 5, in that day shall the Lord of hosts be as a crown of beauty and wreath of glory to the remnant of his people. So there's two scenarios, one destruction of the wicked and two deliverance of the righteous, deliverance of a remnant of his people. And we saw that remnant already several times in chapter 11 and other places, where the remnant comes out from the destruction in an exodus and comes out from exile and from captivity from bondage in an exodus back to Zion or to the center place of gathering of the Lord's people. This puts things in a proper perspective. Instead of attributing to yourself your past achievements, this remnant of the Lord's people attributes their achievements to the Lord. He is the crown of beauty and wreath of glory. They give glory to Him and they give thanks to Him. And they recognize Him as a source of their strength and the source of their successes and the source of their victories of the past. Verse 6, A spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who repulse the attack at the gates. 
the attack at the gates is through the Assyrians. They come in and invade the promised land. So there are those of Ephraim who repulse the Assyrian invasion and succeed. But it is only the remnant of the Lord's people that is able to do that, not the main body who are destroyed by the Assyrians. It also alludes to the leadership of the people at that time because the one who sits in judgment, the one who judges, is the Lord's servant in the book of Isaiah. The Lord is judge and the servant is judge. They both judge. But in this case, the spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, at the time of the Assyrian attack, the Lord's servant is the one who provides a way of escape, who leads the exodus, who helps overthrow the Assyrian power, as we'll see later on in chapter 41. He's the one who turns things around for the Lord's people, as King David did anciently against the Philistines, and as Moses did against the Canaanites, and Joshua, and so forth. So there is one who leads the battle. The Lord is the source of strength to them. Verse 7, back to the wicked. These two have indulged in wine and are giddy with strong drink. Priests and prophets have gone astray through liquor. They're intoxicated with wine. They stagger because of strong drink. The cross-reference there is chapter 56, verses 10 through 12, which also talks about the prophets of the Lord's people being drunk, being dumb watchdogs, unable to see trouble coming or give warning of it. They're asleep and don't warn the people of what's coming up. In chapter 56, they are the highest ring of the spiritual ladder. They are the very ones upon whom the people are relying, the ones who should be sounding the alarm at their job, and they don't. They're giddy with strong drink. They're indulging in wine. The wine is, again, the wine of delusion. It's that idea of the scriptures mingled with the philosophies of men, truth mingled with falsehood, and the wine of worldliness, of the wine of Babylon, false ideas and notions, the opposite of divine revelation, which is contrasted here in the next few verses. Priests and prophets, the religious leadership of the people is focused upon here. In other places, as we've already seen, the political leadership is also focused upon. And generally in the book of Isaiah, they are on a par. Whatever is the situation with one is the situation with the other. There are wicked spiritual leaders and wicked political leaders both doing their thing at the same time. They stagger because of strong drink. That cross-reference there is chapter 19, verse 14, which talks about Egypt staggering like a drunkard into his vomit. They err as seers. They blunder in their decisions. That is, the prophets and priests, who should be seers, who should be receiving revelation from the Lord for the Lord's people. And they are making mistakes in that respect. They don't see things right. The decisions they make regarding the Lord's people, their spiritual condition, are an error too. They blunder in their decisions. Verse 8, For all tables are filled with vomit. No spot is without excrement. Just like at a drunken orgy where people eat and drink and then vomit up, the Romans comes to mind at the end of their civilization. It's just a horrible scene of just a big mess. <laughs> and that's the imagery the prophet is using here of how degenerate the Lord's people have become as a result, partly, of the prophet's intoxication with wine. Tables, also in the book of Isaiah, is a rhetorical link to tablets, which is the same word in Hebrew. The tablets allude to the word of God. One learns truth through writings upon tablets. 
So this alludes to the idea that what the people are getting to eat spiritually is vomit. It's something that's partly digested and vomited up for consumption. <laughs> it's not pure, unadulterated truth. It's just superficially digested stuff. I think of some inspirational reading in that light. Some of it is so superficial and doesn't really get to the heart of anything. And people think that that's it. That is alluded to here that, in fact, they're not getting revelation instruction from the Lord directly. They're getting it from materials that other people have vomited up, their versions, their half-digested materials. Verse 9. Whom shall he give instruction? Whom shall he enlighten with revelation? That is where the Lord's at. And that's where he'd like his people to be. Not relying upon half-digested materials. The Lord wants to give his people instruction himself, enlighten them with revelation. He's asking who? Weanlings weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast? Ask the question. It's very much like Paul's analogy of the meat and the milk, where he says, we who have need of meat are still on milk. We must progress past the baby stage, the infant stage, and be weaned of that and go on to the meat of the gospel, to the meat of divine revelation. And we're not. We're still staying with the milk, in the milk phase. And that's the question here. Do you want to be babies forever? Do you want to be toddlers and infants the rest of your lives and stay that way? For it is but precept upon precept, verse 10. Precept upon precept, measure by measure, measure by measure, a trifle here, a trifle there. That is using alliteration and assonance in Hebrew, Kavlakav, Kavlakav, Tzavlatav, Tzavlatav. It alludes to the idea of learning things parrot fashion, where the teacher says something and the whole class repeats it back. And that's a common way of learning still, among the Arabs anyway, in the Middle East. And it's okay up to a point, it works, but if that's your mode of learning for the rest of your life, then where are you at? You know, just, just a babe and a suckling. You've got to get it from God yourself, through his inspiration through direct revelation or revelation through his prophets. Therefore, by incomprehensible speech and a strange tongue must he speak to these people. These people is that expression that indicates that the people are in an alienated state. They're not my people, which is the covenant formula. He can't speak to them himself because they don't listen. They don't hear him speaking to them, God. Therefore, he has to speak to them through some other means. A strange tongue and incomprehensible speech alludes to the Assyrians, the invading foreigners who come in and who speak in a strange tongue that nobody understands. They're aliens. And so he's going to speak to his people through them, teach them a lesson. When they invade the land and destroy the people, destroy the land, kill the people, take them captive, impose their yoke of servitude upon them, that's how he's going to speak to them, by way of judgments. Maybe then they'll listen. The tongue, too, alludes to that idea. The tongue is a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. He's a tongue that's mouthing off against the Lord's people and against the Lord himself. The same as the mouth speaking great things against the Most High in the book of Daniel. It's the Antichrist, or the king of Assyria, the king of the north. To whom he said, verse 12, This is rest, let the weary rest. This is a respite, but they would not listen. What is rest? The word of God is rest, provides rest. 
Like Jesus said, come unto me and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. In me you shall find rest. The rest also in the scriptures generally is the presence of the Lord. The people of Israel did not enter into his rest during the Sinai wilderness wandering because they had transgressed in the wilderness. So they did not enter into his presence. Only Moses and the 70 elders did. If the Lord's people would follow his instruction and his revelation, they would come into his presence and find rest. There is rest for the weary. There is a respite. These people would not listen, as we already found out. So, to them, verse 13, the word of the Lord, that is, should be revelation, direct revelation and inspiration and instruction. To them, the word of the Lord remained, remained at the level of precept upon precept, precept upon precept, measure by measure, measure by measure, a trifle here, a trifle there. Kav kav, tzav tzav. They stayed at that level of the rote method of learning the law of God and the word of God. It's like going to Sunday school and hearing the same lesson repeated over and over, week after week or year after year, and never going beyond that and believing that that's it. That's all there is to learn. And so, to them the word of the Lord remained, that lesser portion. A trifle here, a trifle there, that persisting, still in verse 13, they might lapse into stumbling and break themselves, become ensnared and be taken captive. They are taken captive by the Assyrians in the book of Isaiah. That's a word link. They stumble over the Holy One of Israel in that day. That's a word link in chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. In other words, they're overtaken by the Day of Judgment and don't survive it because they didn't have enough revelation or direct inspiration or instruction from God directly to know what to do in that day. They were always relying on other people's vomit. Verse 14, So what is the solution to this problem? Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of the Lord. You scoffers who preside over these people in Jerusalem. In this case, probably still the spiritual leadership, but perhaps also the political leadership. That leadership are in a state of scoffing at the truth of God's word. The people are not listening, and the leadership are scoffing. So what hope is there for the masses? Verse 15, you have supposed by taking refuge in deception and hiding behind falsehoods, there's a definition of your wine, to have covenanted with death or reached an understanding with Sheol. Sheol is the underworld or hell or the spirit prison, which is here in parallel with death. When you die, that's where you go. That's where these people go. And there's your covenant with death. You have supposed by taking refuge in deception and hiding behind falsehoods to have covenanted with death or reached an understanding with Sheol that should a flooding scourge sweep through the earth, should it, and if it ever does, who knows if it will, we don't think so, but some say it will, namely Isaiah, and the Lord says it, but we don't necessarily believe that, that just a bunch of alarm people are spreading around. Should a flooding scourge sweep through the earth, it shall not reach you. Uh We're going to be okay. Why? Because we have covenant with death. And death is one of the names of the king of Assyria. So they're on his side. They accept his peace treaties, which he makes with a wicked world, taking them in, deceiving them. They believe, like the masses of people do in that day, masses of wicked people, that there will be this peace. 
And that's one aspect of it, and there's also many other aspects of just relying on the arm of flesh in general, on any lies or deception. Because the king of Assyria in the book of Isaiah is a paradigm of wickedness. And anybody who is wicked more or less emulates him to a greater or lesser degree. Just as the God of Israel is himself a paradigm of righteousness, a paradigm of holiness. He's called the Holy One of Israel. He's called the Valiant One of Israel. He's a paradigm of those who are holy and valiant. So the king of Assyria is a paradigm of the wicked. If you lean toward wickedness and the things that are not of God, you are more or less following him and you are more or less of his camp. In that way you covenant with death, even if you don't necessarily give direct lip service to him or directly accept him, you're still in his camp because you're doing the kinds of things that he does. That should a flooding scourge sweep through the earth, it shall not reach you. The scourge, the flooding scourge, is again the king of Assyria. That's a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. He's the scourge of the wicked. And we've already seen the whip, which is the same word in Hebrew, shot. It's translated either scourge or whip. It designates these two individuals, the king of Assyria on the one hand, the Lord's servant on the other. The king of Assyria is also associated with the flood, the flood imagery. And he's going to flood the earth, meaning that his armies are going to conquer the earth. Like a new flood, they're going to flood over everything and conquer the world. And it'll have the same destructive force as the ancient flood did in the days of Noah. It's a worldwide destruction of the wicked, engineered and conducted by the king of Assyria. But these people think they're going to be safe in that time. If that ever should happen, they'll be okay. These are the people who are taking refuge in deception, hiding behind falsehoods. In other words, they love and believe a lie. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says my Lord Jehovah, I lay in Zion a stone, a keystone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. They who believe it will not do rashly. This is the Lord's antidote again to that situation of destruction by the Assyrians. In Zion a stone alludes to a seer stone. Again, divine revelation. And that revelation is a foundation upon which to build. Same as we saw earlier. Whom shall he give instruction? Whom shall he enlighten with revelation? In that day of judgment, you're going to need all the instruction you can get. All the revelation from God you can get to guide you through that time to know what to do. If you hold fast to that, you will be preserved. You'll be like the house that's built upon the rock. And the storms came and beat upon that house and it stood because it was built upon a foundation of revelation. That's the same kind of thing as Jesus said to Peter. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because Peter at that point had received revelation from God, from his Father in heaven, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the stone also alludes to a seer, the true seer, which is the antidote of the false seers. We saw earlier, verse 7, that these prophets and priests were intoxicated with wine and delusions. They err as seers. So the Lord has his seer who sees correctly. Whenever a situation like that occurs, the Lord always has the answer, the antidote, the true seer. And we also see that in Genesis, the Lord's blessing upon Judah, which talks about the shepherd, the stone of Israel. It's a person. He's called a stone because he is a seer, and he's a shepherd of the Lord's people. And in the book of Isaiah, the Lord's servant is that stone, or that seer, or that shepherd. As we see in the next verse, I will make justice the measure, righteousness the weight. Righteousness is one of his names. He personifies righteousness. 
upon justice and righteousness, one can build a foundation for prosperity, for being blessed of God. All the way through the book of Isaiah, no matter what the times may be, whether the day of judgment has come, justice and righteousness always remain as a foundation upon which to build, through which one can inherit salvation. And those who do so, it says, they who believe it will not do rashly. Those who believe God's revelation, they won't be in a panic. They won't be running around like a chicken without its head on in that day. They'll know exactly what to do. This idea also kind of repeats itself in chapter 53, verse 1, which says, Who has believed our revelation? There is the revelation again, which appears in chapter 28, verse 7. It's a word link. And also the word believe. They who believe it will not do rashly, because there is salvation for them there of God. In chapter 53, that salvation comes through the, the one spoken of there, the suffering servant, the suffering figure. I will make justice the measure, righteousness the weight, because there was no justice among the wicked of the Lord's people, nor their leadership. Verse 6 says, A spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who repulse the attack at the gates. So we're back to the righteous element, the remnant, who hold fast to justice and righteousness. The measure and the weight alludes to building. You start building by, first of all, getting the correct architecture and design of your building, and the plummet or the weight helps you to build up straight. A hail shall sweep away your false refuge, and waters flood the hiding place. So in that day, there's two ways you can go. There is the Lord's way, in which there is a sure foundation, a precious cornerstone upon which to build, or there is destruction through the hail, a hail of fire and brimstone in this case, from the sky, that sweeps away the false refuge of the wicked, those who take refuge in deception. And waters flood the hiding place, their hiding place. The waters again allude to the king of Assyria and his armies, and the hail, the destruction that he causes. So it reaches them in full measure, in fact, the wicked. Your covenant with death shall prove void, verse 18. And your understanding with Sheol have no effect. It's just a lie. It's just false. It's like a white paper. It means nothing. When the flooding scourge sweeps through, you shall be overrun by it. When the king of Assyria invades, he'll overrun you. Verse 19, as often as it sweeps through, the scourge, both the king of Assyria and also the destruction that he causes, and also the plagues that follow him. As often as it sweeps through, you shall be seized by it, Morning after morning it shall sweep through, by day and by night it shall seize you. It shall cause terror merely to hear word of it. In the destruction that's foretold, there are also plagues that follow, like desolating sicknesses that Isaiah talks about, that are like a scourge that sweeps through the land. And as you hear about it, either on the radio or in news reports, the news of it will be terrifying because of its immensity the immense destruction that is caused by the king of Assyria. Remember that the Lord's wicked people, as all the inhabitants of Babylon, of the world in general, will be destroyed as in a Sodom and Gomorrah type of destruction. And that would cause terror. And the plagues and sicknesses that sweep through the earth will certainly cause terror. Verse 20, Then shall come to pass the proverb, The couch is too short to stretch out on, the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. So there will be no rest 
for the wicked. As Isaiah says, there is no rest for the wicked. This alludes to deprivation. There's no place really to stretch out on, to even lie down, or to be warm. It's covenant curse. These people come under a covenant curse. As a contrast, they who walk uprightly shall attain to peace and rest in their beds, it says in chapter 57, verse 2. And at the end of chapter 57, it says, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Verse 21, For the Lord will rise up. That is ominous. The verb rise up is not friendly. He will rise up as he did on Mount Pratsim. Mount Pratsim literally means the mount of breakings forth. He broke forth upon the wicked and consumed them by his fire in the Sinai wilderness, during the wilderness wandering, when they transgressed there, and the earth swallowed them up, and so forth. And the Lord rose upon the mount Sinai, and the thunders quaked, and the trumpets sounded, and the noise frightened the people, and they ran away from the mountain and said, We don't want to speak to him. You speak with him, Moses, and tell us what he says. We'll do it. So, this is an unfriendly scene here, alluding to the wicked, as it also says here, the Lord will rise up as he did on the Mount Pratsim and be stirred to anger, as in the valley of Gibeon. In the valley of Gibeon, the sun stood still while Joshua and his men slew the wicked, or slew the Amalekites, I believe it was, who were the native inhabitants of the land who had reached a state of wickedness. Their iniquity was full. The Lord smote them and destroyed them from the land so that the Israelites could inherit it. And that is what's alluded to here, that the Lord is going to destroy the wicked from the land because he's angry with them. Anger is also a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is stirred up against the Lord's people, as we see in chapter 37. The Lord uses the king of Assyria to do that work of destruction among his wicked people and among all wicked people. So, this is the judgment aspect of the Day of Judgment. He will stir to anger as in the Valley of Gibeon to perform his act, his unwanted act, to do his work, his bizarre work. What is this bizarre work or his unwanted act? It is the destruction of his people. He doesn't want to do that. That's alien to his nature. When he destroyed the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea, you think he enjoyed doing that? He wept for them. It's a Jewish tradition. Just as he wept at the destruction of the flood, when so many people of his children were destroyed because of their wickedness. In a way, it was a kindness to do so. Rather than perpetuate these dysfunctional patterns generation after generation, he put an end to them and started off with a righteous remnant, started off a new cycle of events. To perform his act as an wanted act and do his work, his bizarre work. The work of the Lord is a word link to many other places in Isaiah and in other scriptures. The work of the Lord is twofold in that day of the judgment, the work of destruction on the one hand and the work of deliverance on the other. In this case, it is the work of destruction. Therefore, scoff not, talking to the leadership in Jerusalem, the leadership of his people, those who preside over them. Therefore, scoff not, lest your bonds grow severe. The bonds are the bonds of sin that hold them bound. They are bound by their own sins, as we see here, that they're taking refuge in deception and hiding behind falsehoods. They're locked in to some kind of unreality, covenant with death. He said, don't scoff, because the more you scoff, the more those bonds of unreality, of sin, will hold you bound until that day of destruction comes and will take you away. So get out of the scoffing mode. 
Always, those who are in the wrong do scoff and persecute others. The Lord's righteous remnant never scoff, and they never persecute, never judge. Therefore scoff not, lest your bonds grow severe, for I have heard utter destruction decreed by my Lord, the Lord of hosts, upon the whole earth. No matter what you say, no matter what you think, how safe you are, just like the people in Sodom, they probably never thought that that fiery destruction of fire and brimstone rained out of the sky would ever happen to them. And if Sodom had been there for generations, why would suddenly everything change? It does. That's the precedent. Sodom and Gomorrah is the precedent. Except this time it's a worldwide destruction, as we saw in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 5 is cross-referenced there, which says, The Lord of hosts is marshalling an army for war. They come from a distant land beyond the horizon. The Lord and the instruments of his wrath to cause destruction throughout the earth. That is the Assyrian army. And in chapter 13, it is a Sodom and Gomorrah destruction that says, In Babylon, the most splendid of kingdoms shall be thrown down as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. As the day of the Lord shall come as a cruel outburst of anger and wrath to make the earth a desolation, that sinners may be annihilated from it. We read all that in chapter 13. So those are word links to the present destruction spoken of. As for the righteous, or even these wicked who repent, he says in verse 23, Give heed and hear my voice. Be attentive and listen to what I say. But we saw a moment ago that the majority don't listen, or they would not listen. But some do. The voice is the servant who personifies God's voice. It's a metaphor describing him in the book of Isaiah, same as the tongue describes the king of Assyria. Give heed and hear my voice. Be attentive and listen to what I say. The Lord is going to speak now and give warning before the day of judgment comes. How is he going to give warning? Through his servant. Will the plowman be forever plowing to sow seed, disking and harrowing the same ground? When he has smoothed his surface, does he not sprinkle fennel and scatter cumin? Does he not demarcate wheat from barley and plant buckwheat in its own plot? So he's using the farmer imagery to show that a person just doesn't go on plowing the same ground over and over and over. You know, you move on to the next phase. That's the same idea expressed in different imagery and a different allegory than the milk and meat phase that we talked about earlier. Are you always going to be a little baby sucking the milk? Or are you going to go on and grow up? And so it is here. If you're a plowman, you're not going to be disking and harrowing the same ground over and over. Eventually you've got to plant. Otherwise you'll get nothing. And all your plowing and harrowing the same ground over and over is not going to help any. It's good to get started, that's all. Also, he smooths the surface and sprinkles fennel and scatters cumin and he demarcates wheat from barley and plants buckwheat in its own plot. He does everything correctly in a proper way. There's order here. There is intelligence. You're smart about how you do things. You don't just go willy-nilly and do this in a shoddy way and that in a shoddy way. And so it is with spiritual things. There's discernment here and discretion that's used. His God instructs him, verse 26, directing him in the proper procedure. There is again that key idea of divine revelation, instruction. It's a word link to verse 9. Whom shall he give instruction? Whom shall he enlighten with revelation? Fennel is not threshed with a sharp toothed sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. You don't need to roll a huge cartwheel over cumin. It alludes to the idea that people are going about things the wrong way. Otherwise, why would it say this? Right now, the situation is that God's people are not using proper procedure. 
the place is in disorder and disarray. We've got to get back to the Lord's way of doing things. It implies that things need to be set in order here. Fennel is beaten out with a stick and common with a rod. Domestic grain is ground. One does not go on endlessly threshing it. You've got grain and you thrash it and thrash it and thrash it to death. It's the same idea as remaining in one phase and not moving on to the next. It cannot be ground by driving horse and threshing cart over it. Verse 29, these things originate with the Lord of hosts, whose counsel is wonderful, whose inspiration is surpassing. Everything that is of God is pure. His inspiration is surpassing. There's nothing that compares with getting pure inspiration from God. His counsel is best. It's proved the test of time. That which originates with God is a sure foundation.